Good morning. It is indeed my great privilege to stand here and present the Word of God to you this morning. It's been almost a year now since uh, Joy and I have been coming down here and sharing in uh, uh, Blake's absences. And uh, what a what a tremendous privilege for me to be mentored by your elders and by your pastor in the preaching and teaching of God's word. So I want to thank you for that. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews chapter one again. And uh, we're going to we're going to go a few verses further than uh, you have been in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of the things that Blake had asked if I'd be willing to do is to come down and uh, and to pick up where he left off. And I, I had resisted that before, not really resisted. It just didn't happen to be what I was studying at the time. But I um, I thought that it would be a great opportunity to fall in on uh, what he was doing. And it's been a blessing to me. And I'm I'll be honest with you, the passage we're going to look at is a long one. And I really hope he's going to spend at least another week on it because there's so much here. Hear the word of God. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this is on uh, page 1187. Okay, for those who may be looking. God spoke to us by the fathers, or spoke to our fathers by the prophets, verse, chapter, uh, verse 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe, by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of which of of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels is proved proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, of all things that are seen and unseen, Lord, we pray and invoke your presence with us this morning. We ask that your word spoken from my lips would be clear and that it would be you that speaks. And Lord, that once again, you would speak to our hearts in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our joys, in the midst of our tribulations and our pains, and in the midst of things that are going well. Lord, may your word speak to our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, our worship and service to our God and Jesus, his human ruler, is a result of an emotional response to sound doctrine. That is what our writer is doing for us in the book of Hebrews. The author of this book was probably not an apostle, but most likely the disciple of apostolic ministry. He was probably a a Hellenistic or what what we call a Greek-cultured Jew, so he grew up probably outside of the land of Palestine, outside of the geographical limits. And he might have even been a Roman or perhaps an Alexandrian. So he might have grown up in the north of the Mediterranean or maybe down in Egypt. He might have had knowledge of the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures themselves, but we know from his quotations that he had knowledge of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. The book of Hebrews was probably written sometime after the death of Paul, but more than likely before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when the Roman Empire came in and finally dispersed and, and scattered the, uh, the Israelites, the, the, the people of Judea, uh, all over the Roman Empire and, and destroyed the temple. And we know this from some of the quotations uh, from the book of Hebrews that talk about the temple sacrifices and the priesthood actually taking place in the present. And as Blake talked about two weeks ago, the target audience was probably a group of Christians who were being persecuted and they were wondering, is it worth it? Is serving God worth it? Is Christ 
and the opposition that we're that we're experiencing because of the name of Jesus Christ is it worth it? And we wonder the same things, don't we? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live according to the gospel? You know, as Blake talked about last week or two weeks ago, he said, is it worth it, young people, to live for Christ in school? Well, of course, the Sunday school answer is, of course it is. Yes. Right. But yet we wonder when we when we finally put boots on the ground and we go to school or we go to work and we go out into the uh, we go into college and we are confronted by another worldview. Is it worth it to name the name of Christ? Well, you may lose friendships. You may lose popularity. That happens in high school. It happens in grade school. And guess what? It happens in college and it happens in the workforce. And the life of the gospel runs counter to human culture. But it's a lifestyle that our King Jesus expects of the citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. And most of the chapter that we're looking at this morning is an argument against the almost deification of angels. Now you go, what's that got to do with me? I don't worship angels. Oh, really? Well, maybe you don't, but how many of you have ever been to a funeral? You don't need to raise your hand, but I've ever been to a funeral. I've done a number of funerals where the people that stand up and do eulogies and, and talk about memories of their loved one, they say things like, well, he's watching over me now. She's looking out for me now. I have a friend who was, I was working with in Puerto Rico. He, he said that about his dad, that he's watching over me now. It's the idea that there's angels, that the human beings, when they die, they become angels and get wings. And, you know, this is not so far removed from us. But the chapter is this chapter is is against that. It's saying that the high regard given to angels was a trademark of post-Babylonian Judaism. The Dead Sea Scrolls in the Greek Old Testament give some insight on the strange teachings that uh, raised angel to the place like it's almost like right under God. And the thought goes something like this. Why should we listen to Jesus? He's a human. When God gave the law, he used angels. That was that was what was taught in in this uh, uh, in this culture. We should go back to our Jewish religion, they would say, and which was given to us by the very angels of God. But as we shall see as we move along here, <clears throat> angels are merely servants of God and his anointed one. They are servants of Jesus Christ, the human king and God himself. So what is the purpose of the author? Well, the author has this purpose. I hope you can read that. <clears throat> the author is very passionate in his argument about because he sees his people. And I would presume that they were people that he loved dearly and loved them as more than passing acquaintance, acquaintances, that they are tempted to go back to a now outdated form of worship and aberrations of Judaism. 
Our unknown author is attempting to evoke an emotional, an emotional response to the concepts of doctrine. And this response should bring about a change in behavior, a change in our thinking. And this is, this was his basic purpose of this, of this particular passage, that one, we would not drift away from the gospel. And that we would grasp the significance of Jesus as our king. And that we would find our ultimate purpose and satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should hold fast to the gospel because God himself declared it. Jesus, who is God, gave us a commission to believe the gospel ourselves and to spread his message to those around us. And because Jesus is far superior to the angels, his message, a message of a right relationship with God and forgiveness of all treason against his majesty, is a greater message than the message given by angels on Mount Sinai. And because Jesus is far superior to the angels, we should make it our vocation. We could make it our occupation to keep his gospel ever before us and to proclaim it to those around us. So, what is this gospel? Well, it's basically the headings that we're going to talk about this morning is this. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Who are the angels and what is their job? And who are we and how should we respond? So, who is Jesus? Well, in verse 5, there's a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And it goes a little something like this. Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. There's also a quote in there from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This was in the context of when uh, Saul, uh, David wanted to build a temple for God, for the, a place, a solid place for the Ark of the Covenant. God said, no, no, your son's going to do that. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm of David and it established a pattern that would be fulfilled in Jesus, the perfect son of David. And though there was never a time when the second member of the Trinity became the father's son, yet the father declared Jesus to be his son, one, at his baptism, he declared Jesus to be his son at his transfiguration. He said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And at his resurrection, when he very, very publicly raised Jesus from the dead. The faithful sons of David were promised the fatherly love of God, but only Jesus, the perfect son, the perfect son of David, would forever be the object of God the Father's love. And Jesus is also our elder brother who shares his inheritance. Verses 8 and 9. Let's take a look real quick. Verses 8 and 9, they read like this. But this, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Remember, he's saying this about the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You know, the book of Matthew talks about Adam being the son of God. <laughs> Adam, however, did not love righteousness. Adam disobeyed. He was not faithful. But Jesus is another 
is, a, is what the Apostle Paul calls a second Adam. He did love righteousness. Righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is one of us. Jesus is one of us. He is now seated in a place of authority on our behalf. No angel or anyone else for that matter sits in God's throne room. If they are not standing and moving about in the service of the king, they are on their faces prostrate before the throne of God. Look at Daniel chapter 7. You don't have to turn there right now, but I'll just tell you about Daniel chapter 7. It's a picture that Daniel has, a vision of the throne of God being set up and God comes in and takes his seat and everyone in the throne room stands and unlike, and unlike our military commands and unlike our courtrooms, no one tells them to be seated. No one sits, but Jesus, he sat down. He is the Son of Man in Daniel 7 that approaches the Ancient of Days and he receives authority. That's the only time that's ever happened is at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only time a human being has ever received authority from God to the likes that Jesus did. He has all authority, all authority and all power. Matthew 28, Jesus said, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus says that Daniel chapter 7 and all other messianic prophecies had been fulfilled in him. And then he invited us. He invited his disciples and through them he invites us to participate in his rule over, over the earth. Jesus is God himself. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Yeah, God is calling God, God. <laughs> God is calling Jesus God as he anoints him. With the oil of gladness. Jesus is God Himself. He describes, the, the author here describes Jesus as the one who creates the heaven, who created the heavens and the earth and remains forever. Jesus remains forever. And He describes all of creation as a garment to be rolled up and set aside. And yet this same Jesus is the word that became flesh and tabernacled among us from John chapter 1. Now, in comparison to Jesus, who are the angels? Well, in a word, they're servants. In verse 6, we see a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. But uh, in many translations, you won't find... Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, bearing this same quote. And that is because this is one of the places where, remember where I, where I said that uh, the writer of Hebrews uses the Greek translation of the, New Test, of the Old Testament in his uh, quotations. Well, this is one of them. It says that angels owe Jesus, the God-man, worship. And they did. 
we just we just went through the season where we talk about the angels coming down and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. This was the angels praising the the son of David, the God man. Angels are ministers who in addition to all their heavenly duties are sent forth to minister, to take care of us, who will inherit salvation. Well, what does that mean? The Apostle Paul says that we are inheritors of salvation, bought back from sin and death by the precious blood of Jesus, who by his pure and sinless life qualified himself to be our representative, our majority leader, our king. He emptied himself of his rights and became one of us so that in our flesh he could pay the penalty of sin and earn righteousness before God. And our inheritance, <laughs> the inheritance, we are the ones that will inherit salvation. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. Our inheritance is something Jesus has already received. That rule, power, Authority? Yeah, that's our inheritance. And Jesus has it. Jesus sits at God's right hand. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we sit there with him. We sit there with him. We will one day rule over the heavens and the earth with Jesus, our elder brother. Yet, we don't see that now. Our participation in the rule of Christ over creation is limited to, one, trusting his gospel, believing that he really is the Son of God who has come to save us from our sin and misery, and praying and working to spread God's kingdom over the earth. And somehow, angels, the angels that we will one day rule over, are now God's servants and our caretakers participating in, in Christ in the world. Well, that gospel, that is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Now, here's a question. What should we do about it? Well, in chapter 2, we're told, pay attention. Take heed. Hold fast to it. Make it your preoccupation. The gospel declares that all the things that we hold on to for security, money, power, careers, family, friends, it's all going to disappear. And the only thing that's going to remain is Christ and his kingdom. That's it. We must pay attention. We must turn our minds and our hearts and our emotions and our actions to the gospel. Hold firm to it lest we drift away. You know, some of us work in professions that have standards that must be adhered to for certification. And sometimes it's our, it's our employers that do this. Mechanics, they have CCs, uh, they have clinics that they go to. I just recently went to a Ford clinic. Not because I like Fords, but that's because that's all the state runs. Fords and internationals. I went to a clinic. Well, that is to maintain my certification. Nurses, they, their employers make them take classes that, that uh, 
will help them to be on top of their game. And it's so the, it's the same thing with the gospel. Christ and his kingship, his atonement, his mission for the church, his and our present and future reign with him. This is to be our occupation. Make this your vocation, your occupation. The gospel is the final word from Christ and there will be no more. God said to John, God said to, uh, to those standing there on the, at the river Jordan when Jesus was baptized, he said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Well, how do we know whether or not we've really embraced the gospel? You know, we were listening in Sunday school this morning to uh, Ted Tripp talk about, talk about all kinds of good things that we can make idols. And it kind of reminded me of reading Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, in one particular part of his book, he um, called uh, Religious Affections, his treatise on religious affections, he said something like this. Oh, you believe in God? You believe in Jesus? Very good. You just qualified to be a demon. You see, it takes more than just mental assent. It takes more than just saying a sinner's prayer. It takes more than just being baptized. It takes belief in the gospel that says this, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Your sin is so much greater than you ever thought possible. And once in a while, God takes your blinders off and lets you see it. But it also says this, cheer up, because my grace, God says, is greater than you can imagine. Beyond your wildest imagination. And if we truly embrace that gospel, if we truly embrace Christ, as he has presented to us in the scriptures, we will do what John tells, tells the people to do. John the Baptist, as he preached the sermon, thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival, make smooth and straight the road. Every ditch will be filled in, every bump smoothed out, the detours straightened out and all the ruts paved, up, paved over. Everyone will be there to see the parade of God's salvation. And when the crowds came out for baptism, because it was the popular thing to do. John exploded, you brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? It is your life that must change, not your skin. And don't you think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father? Being a child of Abraham is neither here nor there. The children of Abraham are a dime a dozen. God can make children of Abraham out of a... Out of a bunch of stones, if he wants, what counts is your life? Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead word, it goes into the fire. And then the crowd asked him, well, what are we supposed to do? If you have two coats, give one away. Do the same with your food. And then the tax collectors came also to be baptized and said, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, No more extortion. Collect only what is required by law. And soldiers, 
came to him and said, and what should we do? And he told them, no more shakedowns, no blackmail, and be content with your rations. Brothers and sisters, the writer of Hebrews implores his readers and us to make the gospel our priority, to make it our occupation because of who it came from. Jesus, the Son of God, and God himself. It is the most worthwhile thing to spend our time on. And as the early readers of this book were facing great temptations to return to the comforts of their culture, little did they know that within a few short years, their temple would be completely destroyed and the daily sacrifices would stop forever. In other words, their whole basis for rejecting Jesus was outdated and would soon be destroyed. Only Jesus, God himself, remains forever. Well, brothers and sisters, what is it this morning that gives you comfort? When the whole world is lost, including the money, the people, the power, the comfort, the travel, and all that you have achieved in life is gone, what is left? I myself have even been tempted within the last couple of weeks to... To go for the money. It's a very easy thing to do. There's always things that we could use money for. I've been tempted to throw, to throw away the gospel ministry for money. Now, here's what I'm not saying, brothers and sisters. I am not saying that you should quit your work that you do now and go into the ministry. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. And it's the same thing Ted Tripp was saying this morning in Sunday school is let's get our priorities straight. Let's use our talents. Let's use our occupations as servants in our service to God and not let them master us. Let the good news of Jesus Christ reorient your life. Jesus took your death upon himself. And in his life, he perfectly submitted to God's rule, trading your sin and death for his right standing before God. Do you believe this? Has it gripped your heart? I know that as soon as we walk out the door, we will be tempted to forget this gospel. I will be tempted to forget this gospel. Let's hold fast to it lest we drift away. Let us pray. Oh God, our God, thank you for your loving kindness toward us that even while we were yet sinners, you came and dwelt among us and you loved us. You healed our diseases. You redeemed us by your loving kindness and you surround us with your love. Lord, I pray that you would go with us. Lord, as we go out into a dying world, as we go out into a world that's scrambling after comfort and security, that we would be those that are comfortable in Christ. Lord, that we would have our security in you and in your gospel and in your future kingdom. And Lord, that we would rest secure that our God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. 
Thank you for all you've done, all you're going to do. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.